So it's great to be with you all today. It's great to uh, get into something as easy and light to talk about as the book of Revelation. So I think we'll probably be out of here in like 15 minutes or so, if that's good with you guys. Okay. Um, Well, I want to just do a quick recap because last week, I know you guys had a recap of what you've been going through so far in the book of Revelation. And uh, the week before that was when you actually kind of broke new ground in Revelation chapter 19. So I kind of want to do a little recap after the recap, if that's okay. So uh, two weeks ago, if you were here, we talked about the passage in Revelation 19 where these two characters that we've been following in the book of Revelation, the beast and the false prophet, they gather this enormous army together to oppose God. But then what happens is Jesus comes. He's... he's ooh. He's uh, riding a horse, and uh, it does not go well for the armies of the beast and the false prophet. They're completely destroyed. The beast and the false prophet are thrown into the lake of fire, and now we're going to pick up in Revelation 20. So I think what I want to do is just, let's just get our arms around this passage. I'm going to read it once through, and then we'll get into it a little bit. Sound good? Okay. So here's Revelation 20. We'll read the first 10 verses. If you want to open up um, your Bibles or your app or whatever you use, uh, it'll be on the screen behind me as well. So here's what it says. I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until a thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him a thousand years. And when the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and to gather them for battle. In number, they're like the sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them, and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So that pretty much explains itself. Um, if, you know, I think we can wrap up now if you guys are, are good. This is actually really complicated, <laughs> if you couldn't tell by reading this passage. This is something that's really, um, there's, there's lots involved here. There's thousands of years and lots of really complex timelines. And first this happens and then this happens and lots of really uh, interesting images that are given here. And so this is what I think we'll do. Let me know if this works for you. We're going to dive right in to a few potential interpretations of what this passage could mean just in terms of the story of the book of Revelation. Um, 
And then after that, we'll come up for air after we dive in and we'll talk about what this might mean for us today. Does that sound good? Okay. I mean, you can't really tell me no because I've already prepared that, but I'm just letting you know what's about to happen, okay? We're going to dive in a little bit. We're going to talk about some potential ways to read this and then we're going to come up for air. So, um, one of the most interesting movies that I watched back in 2018 was the movie Dunkirk. Have any of you ever seen the movie Dunkirk before? Uh, so it basically, if you're not familiar with the movie, it follows the, um, the, the saga in World War II of the evacuation of British soldiers from France across the Channel into England. The German army had pushed the British army to the beach, and so evacuating them was a real challenge, but lots of civilians came in and, um, in their own boats and rescued the soldiers and brought them back home. And I watched this movie, and I really enjoyed it. This movie was directed by Christopher Nolan, which meant I was automatically interested. Uh, but <laughs> I actually had to watch it a couple times, because... This being a Christopher Nolan movie, you know he's not going to tell a straightforward story. And in fact, in the book, uh, sorry, in the movie Dunkirk, he tells the story of the evacuation through three different timelines. So the first timeline follows the, um, the soldiers who are trapped on the beach. And this timeline follows them over the course of a week as they're waiting for people to rescue them and all of the ordeals that they go through. At the same time in the movie, he follows the timeline of British RAF pilots who are trying to provide assistance to the soldiers who need to be evacuated, but he tells this story not over the course of a week, but just over one hour towards the end of the evacuation. And if that wasn't complicated enough, he tells a third story about British civilians who are coming across the channel to rescue the soldiers, and he tells this story over the course of the last day. So you can see why we might need a couple times to watch it to go through to get what's going on here. There are three different timelines at work telling the same story in the movie Dunkirk. And just like in Dunkirk, I want to present to you three potential timelines for this particular chapter in the book of Revelation. So given the same text, given the same uh, uh, things that are described in this chapter, there are actually three main ways of looking at this that, that follow different timelines throughout history. And it's not like the difference between this and Dunkirk is that we don't believe that all three of these ideas are happening at the same time, just like the movie, but these three potential timelines all tell the same story in a different way, just like the movie Dunkirk does. So, before we get into these three different ways of looking at this, I just want to give you one small um, caveat that I think is going to help us as we go through this. So I think whenever we um, read about this, and particularly the thousand-year period, one potential thing that might trip us up is if we have in our heads the idea that this thousand-year period can only be metaphorical, or we might have in our heads that this thousand-year period can only be literal. And if we have either one of these ideas in our heads, we're actually, it's going to be more difficult for us to understand these interpretations. So what I wanted you to do um, uh, is read these quotes. I spent a lot of uh, time cultivating different quotes from different um, reliable 
evangelical scholars who have studied this passage. And I just want you to read through what they're saying just to be able to free us to take either interpretation as we need to. So the first quote is from a man named Robert Mounts. He's a really well-known scholar within evangelicalism. And he says this. He says, some commentators understand this period as a literal 1,000 years, but the majority take it to indicate a lengthy period of undetermined duration. And he says nothing in the immediate context favors either interpretation. So he's like, it could go both ways. There's another scholar named Richard Bauckham, who is probably the best Revelation scholar alive today, in my opinion. Uh, he says this, he says, the millennium becomes incomprehensible when we take the image literally. So he's very strongly in one camp. Um, also, uh, Ben Witherington, who's a very famous conservative scholar, he says, since Revelation is a book of many symbolic numbers, it would appear likely that John is not specifying a particular length of time for this millennial reign. Unless you think that this is only with modern scholars, I went way back to the year 500, and the, a man named Andrew of Caesarea, who was one of the most well-known scholars on Revelation during this time. And he says, it's not necessary to understand the 1,000 so much by the literal number. And finally, I have a quote from Augustine, who is probably the most influential, if not one of the most influential theologians ever to exist. And he says this, he says, now the thousand years may be understood in two ways. He said it could be either a thousand years, or it could be an equivalent for the whole duration of this world, employing the number of perfection to mark the fullness of time. So all I'm trying to do with these quotes is show you that it's perfectly acceptable to believe that the thousand years is either figurative or literal, and still take the Bible seriously and treat it with respect. And all three of these perspectives, regardless of what they say about the literal or non-literalness, they all treat the Bible with respect. Okay, this was a lot of run-up. Are you guys ready for the three different timelines that we could follow here in the book of Revelation? Okay. The first one I call the flashback. And this timeline basically says, after the events in Revelation chapter 19, we get a flashback to a previous time. And specifically, the thousand years here actually starts with the resurrection of Jesus and the binding of Satan here that's talked about happens at the resurrection of Jesus. So in other words, according to this view, the thousand years is actually going on right now. It started with the resurrection of Jesus and is continuing even today. And people who hold this view, one of the verses that they often look to to support this is Matthew chapter 12. And in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus is being accused by the religious leaders that basically he's working with Satan. And so Jesus defends himself by saying this. He says, if Satan drives out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? But if it's by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? So he's, uh, pe people who take this view would look at what Jesus is saying, and Jesus is actually talking about tying Satan up before the resurrection, and so they would say that, okay, at the resurrection of Jesus, Satan gets tied up. And they, what, they, what they take this to mean is that 
Satan's status as the ruler of the world is gone. That he can't deceive the nations anymore because he's not in charge anymore. That's how they would take this, this particular idea of being bound. And so all this time, according to this view, Satan has been restricted in some way, and those who have died for their faith are reigning with Jesus right now in the year 2023. Another verse that they might use to support this uh, is in Ephesians chapter 2, where it says, God raised Christ up from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion. And then I'll, I'll skip just a little bit where he says, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realm. So they would look at this verse and say, okay, Jesus is reigning right now. And those who have died in Christ are also reigning right now. So the final component of this particular view is that the flashback that we have of the resurrection of Jesus continuing up until this time, it actually continues on past 2023 and into the future. And eventually there will be a time when Satan's defeat will be made final. So the flashback view starts from before us right now and ends after us. And so in other words, what's happening in Revelation 19 is going on right now, according to this view. Okay? This is the flashback view. Are you ready for the second one? This one is called the sequel. And basically, the idea here is that the story is told in chronological order. So, in, in other words, after Revelation chapter 19, when the beast and the false prophet, their armies are destroyed and thrown into the lake of fire, um, right after that, Satan is kind of um, taken like a prisoner of war, right? He's the next domino to fall as this evil empire uh, is destroyed. And so then, what that would mean is that the thousand-year kingdom of those who have died is in kind of this in-between stage, so Jesus has come. He's destroyed the armies that were opposed to him. He's uh, got Satan right where he wants him. But there's this pause in the middle before everything is completely made right and evil is completely destroyed. And uh, those who have been killed for their faith here, they're kind of like the VIP early access members of this kingdom. They're the ones who pay extra to get the little mini pre-concert before the main concert. This is kind of what's going on here in this view. There's like an in-between stage between uh, Revelation 19 and the end of Revelation 20. Okay, so we had the flashback. We had the sequel. Are you ready for the last potential timeline that we could have here? This is something I call the reference. And what this perspective claims is that John is using a reference to a well-known book to emphasize the idea that Satan will be completely defeated. So about 200 to 300 years ago, before John wrote the book of Revelation, there was uh, another book that was written in kind of the same style as the book of Revelation. It was called the book of First Enoch. This is a, a page from the book of First Enoch. 
I don't know if I can have any volunteers if someone wants to read from the book of Enoch. Nobody? Okay. <laughs> Luckily, they have English translations. Um, so the book of Enoch, if I were to summarize the main theme of the book of Enoch, it would be the downfall and destruction of evil spiritual beings. It talks many different times about the downfall of Satan, the downfall of demons, all of the, these things. And this book was incredibly popular among Christians around the time of the early church. This was the purpose-driven life of the early church, if you guys get that reference, right? It's a, we're a little ways past when the purpose-driven life was super popular, but if you know, you know, right? This was, so, this was probably the most well-known book outside of the Bible in the early church. In fact, this book is so popular that you've probably read some of the book of First Enoch without even realizing it because it's quoted in the Bible. In the book of Jude, he's making this point about Satan and demons, and he quotes the book of Enoch. He says, Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about the false teachers. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict them all of the ungodly acts they have committed in their ungodliness and of all the defiant words ungodly sinners have spoken against him. This is a quote from the book of Enoch because it was so popular. The person who wrote the book of Jude took this quote in order to make one of his points because everyone would have known back then that he was quoting first Enoch. So it's hard to overstate the popularity of the book of first Enoch and how well known it was, even if maybe we're not super familiar with it right now. This was super popular among Christians back then. And what's really interesting is that when you look at the book of Enoch, in particular the last section of the book of Enoch, there are some parts of it that are actually very similar to the story we're reading in the book of Revelation. And so um, I'll read to you some of them and uh, kind of the, the points that are happening in the book of Revelation as well. But So for example, in the book of First Enoch, there's uh, this section with a, a fallen spiritual being who is bound up and thrown into the abyss for a long period of time. He's called a star that fall, fell from heaven, which is another reference to Satan that's also used in the Bible. And after this period of time is done, this spiritual being is released, and he's judged by God and thrown into this other pit that's filled with fire. And after this, God sits down on a throne. He opens up books, and he judges all of humanity. And then those who are judged also go into the fiery pit. And after that, there's this house that everyone has been living in, uh, and, and this old house is done away with, and there's this new and better house that's created in the book of Enoch. And we haven't gotten to those last parts yet, but in the, in the next couple of weeks, we'll talk about that. It maps on to the story of the book of Revelation. And so according to this view, because of these, these plot lines are so similar, according to this view, what John is doing here when he talks about Satan being bound for a period of time and when he talks about him being cast into the lake of fire, he's making a reference that everyone back then would have understood. Let me give you an example to see, how, you can see how this works in modern times. So, how many of you are familiar with Star Wars? Okay, 
All right, I'm about to give some spoilers for Star Wars. So if you haven't seen Star Wars and we're planning on seeing Star Wars, this is a spoiler warning. But you probably deserve it because you should have probably also seen it by now. So <laughs> in, the, in the first movie that was made in Star Wars, uh, there is, at the end of the movie, there's this lone spaceship that takes on this huge evil battle station and single-handedly destroys it. You all remember this part, right? Okay, so then, two movies later, in The Return of the Jedi, when a single spaceship single-handedly takes on this huge evil battle station, you probably know what's about to happen, right? He's going to defeat the bad guys, and he's going to destroy the evil battle station, right? And then in the next movie, in The Phantom Menace, when a lone fighter craft single-handedly takes on an evil battle station, you know exactly what's going to happen. He's going to defeat the bad guys and destroy the evil battle station, right? And then more recently, in the, the movie The Force Awakens, when a lone spaceship takes on an evil battle station, you're thinking, doesn't this movie have any more plots? Like, please, just anything else other than this plot. But you know exactly what's about to happen. They're going to defeat the bad guys and destroy the big evil battle station, right? Because you get the reference. And that's kind of what makes the story of Star Wars so powerful, is they're appropriating these themes so that you kind of know what's going to happen. The minute they start talking about a big evil battle station, you're like, okay, I know where this is going. Big evil battle station's going to be blown up, right? That's just what happens in Star Wars. And so, similarly, the idea here, according to this view, is that the book of Enoch was so popular at the time that Revelation was written, as soon as John talks about binding Satan, you're like, oh, okay, I know what's going on here, Right? Just like first Enoch is all about the downfall of spiritual beings, right? That's the main theme of the book of Enoch. John wants his readers to know that's what's going on here too. So imagine you're living in that time and you're listening to the book of Revelation being read to you. And when the beast and the false prophet are destroyed, you're like, okay, but what about Satan, right? He was a part of this too. What's going to happen to him? And then you read about him being bound and thrown into the abyss and you're like, okay, I know what's going on here. That big evil battle station called Satan, he's going to be destroyed. Now, John doesn't just copy and paste here. He's taking this reference and he's using it for his own purposes, for God's purposes, to communicate what God wants him to, according to this view. And, and really, whether or not all of the things that are listed here are literal here are kind of beside the point. They could be. But they could not be because the main point here is just like Revelation is a well, sorry, just like first Enoch is a well-known story about the downfall of spiritual beings, that's what John wants us to view this as. In other words, according to this view, it's another symbol, right? Just like in the previous chapter, most people don't actually think that there's a big sword coming out of Jesus' mouth. It's a symbol that John is using to make his point. And in the same way, according to this view, that's what's happening here, where Satan being bound and thrown into the abyss is a symbol that points to his destruction and downfall. So, <gasps> that's us coming up for air. <laughs> 
We have three different views that we can look at here. The flashback, which says that this story started a long time ago and it'll finish sometime in the future. There's the idea of the sequel, which sees it just as a chronological order. First this happened, then this happened. And finally, we have this um, reference view, which tells us that actually John's main point that he's trying to communicate is a reference to something that everyone would have known back then. And so I want to ask you, which one do you think is the most persuasive? Which one challenged your default view of this passage the most? And most importantly, what are the implications for you if any of these views are right or wrong? For me personally, I think the most persuasive way to read this is actually the reference view. I think this makes good sense of reading the Bible like it's supposed to be read, reading the Bible, reading the book of Revelation like John would want it to be read. But here's the thing. Every single one of these views are good, biblically sound ways to read this passage. And all three of these views have been held by incredibly smart, incredibly godly people. And ultimately, we can all agree to disagree on all of these views for one reason. You want to know what that reason is? Let's go back to Dunkirk for a minute. Each of these three timelines within the book of Dunkirk, they all converge at the end. As the evacuation is complete, the finale is the same for all three of these views. They all lead to the same place when the soldiers are evacuated and home safe. And so, no matter which one you follow, it all leads to the same conclusion. And it's the same with the book of Revelation. The main theme of Revelation chapter 20, and really the whole book of Revelation, is found in each one of these views. Did you know that the the point of the book of Revelation is not to tell you exactly what's going to happen in the future? If you try and read the book of Revelation like it's going to tell you step by step exactly what happens in the future, you're either going to be very confused or very wrong. Because the main theme of the book of Revelation is this. To tell you the main theme of the book of Revelation and Revelation chapter 20, we're going to talk about one more movie. This is really like the heyday of early 2000s action movies. Have you all heard of the movie The Bourne Identity? Right? Okay, so in the plot of this movie, Jason Bourne is a spy who has lost his memory. And he keeps getting attacked by all of these assassins and he can't figure out why. I'm sure all of you can relate to that, right? I know I can. I'm constantly getting attacked by assassins and I don't know why. But eventually through the point of this movie, he realizes that there's actually something going on beyond just getting, uh, having to fend off all of these attacks. He realizes there's a shadowy force behind all of these called Project Treadstone. And if Jason Bourne wants to stay alive, he has to not only defeat the assassins, he actually, if he really wants to stay alive, he needs to defeat this shadowy force called Project Treadstone because that's what's animating all of this. That's what's sending all of the attacks his way. And so 
the main theme of the book of Revelation is just like the born identity. John is writing to these people who are being oppressed and persecuted for their faith in Jesus. And he's writing to people who are suffering and they're asking the question, what is going on? I thought when I followed Jesus that we would actually have victory, that we would be able to live better lives than this. What's going on? How long is it going to be before God fixes all of this? And in Revelation chapter 20, no matter which timeline you follow, it all leads to the same conclusion, the same answer to this question. Evil doesn't win, and God keeps his promises. The whole book of Revelation shows us that actually the real problem here is not just the things that are happening to you in the moment, but there's a shadowy force behind all of these things. And the book of Revelation is written to encourage people to stay strong in their faith because John says you are in the middle of a battle and your weapon is your faithfulness. And ultimately, you know that big shadowy force that's behind all of these things? He's as good as dead. That's why this passage is so crucial, because it shows us that our one true enemy has an expiration date. And you know, Satan gets all the press when we talk about this passage. A lot of the passages with him are confusing, and so we tend to focus on it, but do you know the main characters in this story? They're the ones who are killed for their faith. They are the MVPs of this passage. You know why? Because they're the ones that Satan has tried to destroy. And now instead of succeeding, they are the ones that are ruling with Jesus. All three timelines that we talked about today are in lockstep agreement with this idea. Evil will be destroyed and God will keep his promises. You know, back in 2018... Uh, my wife and I went to go visit her grandparents in England. And we were sitting around the breakfast table one day. I was talking with her grandfather, and we were mentioning some of the different movies that we had seen lately. And I mentioned that I had just seen the movie Dunkirk. And he paused for a minute, and he said, Oh, I remember Dunkirk. His family was one of the families that hosted soldiers on the mainland once they had been evacuated. And even as a child, he can remember what that moment in history was like to participate in Dunkirk. That movie was more than a movie to him. All three of those timelines conveyed a reality that was deeper than just that movie for him. And in the same way, all three of these timelines in the book of Revelation regardless of which one you find compelling or not compelling, they all point to a reality that is deeper than just those interpretations. Again, Satan is not the main character here. The great shift that John uses here is that Satan used to be in charge, but it's actually the same people that he tried to destroy who are now in charge, and he can't touch them. Every single person who has been oppressed 
or faced injustice. Every single person who has been tortured or deprived or killed because of Jesus. Every person who has been the victim of of, uh, anyone else through Satan's influence and control. For these people, these words are more than just a story. They represent the moment of justice and final peace. The one moment that they have looked forward to for months and years and decades because when this happens, it's over. I don't know if you've been counting, but Satan is the last player here. He's the last domino to fall, and he is down for the count. Evil will be gone forever after this moment. Can you imagine? You won't have to worry about your children being harmed as you go through your day to day. You will have peace and security. Racism and prejudice will be obliterated from this world. Physical, verbal, emotional, sexual abuse will be a thing of the past. Wars, mass shootings, gun violence, it will all be erased. Shame, depression, anxiety will never be seen again. On that day, it will be over. We can breathe easy because we made it to the end. That's the reality that this passage represents. That evil doesn't win and God keeps his promises. Let's pray. God, um, even though passages like this are difficult sometimes to understand, I thank you that you have allowed us to see um, something as simple and powerful as the, the truth that evil will not win and you will keep your promises. And for everybody here who is struggling with something that has been caused by Satan or by others who are under the control of Satan, God, I pray that they would find hope in these passages, that they would look forward to that moment when they don't have to worry about this anymore, when they don't have to feel this pain anymore because it will be over. God, I pray that you would give that hope for them today. God, I pray as people have prayed for thousands of years that this day will come soon, that this day will come soon when evil is over. We pray these things in the name of Jesus, who does all of this for us. Amen. They're in close out our service.